Good morning. Before we get started today, I'd like to thank all of you for bearing with me as I've been preaching to you for, what, a year and a half or so, and, uh, and patiently listening and reasoning with me in the scriptures. It's, a, it's been an honor. It's been a privilege to do this, and um, I'm looking forward to James taking over the reins and, uh, and handling the Word of God. But here's, here's what's cool. Here's what's incredible, what we heard from our number one. I don't know exactly what James is going to say next week when he stands up here. I have an idea because I know what I'm passing off to him, so I have an idea. But I do know this, he's going to be using this. And you have this in front of you too. And this hasn't changed and it never will. And the truth that is contained within it, which was written by the Holy Spirit, written by God himself, will never change and it will never come back void. And although stylistically will be different, every person who has taken this pulpit has a different type of um, angle that they take or some sort of a style that they may embrace, the word of God is true. And it is unchanging. And it's beautiful. And it will transform your life and mine if we don't get in the way. And isn't that a great thing to consider? So I'd like to thank you for allowing me to be with you and preaching with you in these last several months as we've approached this incredible moment. One other thing. Last time I preached, I brought sweet corn and gave it away at the doors. And I was, you know, trying to, in case I messed up up here, you guys would forget about that. And then just, oh, he, he brought a sweet corn. What a great guy. I intended to do that again today, but um, I didn't get up early enough. So I apologize. No sweet corn today. Having said that, today is the opening day of the NFL. And um, I've got a little bit of time because my Bears don't play until 4 o'clock. And I think that's the only game going on today, right? No, I guess there is a... Colts game of some sort. I don't know if anybody cares about that. I will not go till one o'clock. Don't you worry. Before we jump into the scriptures, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, praise you, and glorify your name. And we do thank you for your unchanging word and the unchanging truth that came through your son that always existed, will always exist, and we look forward to seeing face to face. We thank you for the salvation that comes through him. We thank you for the the walk that we have the opportunity to walk because of him. We thank you for the continual uh, transforming power of your word and the Holy Spirit in our lives, progressively sanctifying us into the image of your son. We thank you for all of these things. We thank you for the book of John specifically today. As we have been going through this and studying it together, we thank you for the incredible truths, the uniqueness of the book, the incredible truths that are contained within it and for today what we'll see is the incredible blessing and promises that come to the believer who embraces it we thank you for these things be with me with me as i teach and preach this morning that it be your words and not mine in jesus name we pray amen if you would turn in your bibles to john chapter 12 where we have been for quite some time i know but we will finish up john 12 today as i mentioned earlier pastor james will come in next week i believe if not, by the way, I know it's a tough thing to, to move and to transition into a new home. I do have one more in my back pocket if I need to preach next week. So who knows? I'm going to give him that option just in case things become overwhelming for him. So there could be, and I'll, I'll keep that in my back pocket for another day. But I am passing off chapter 13 to him. Here's what's unique about this. John chapter 12, as I've mentioned before, is the last time we hear from Christ publicly before he transitions in chapter 13 to a very private conversation in the upper room with his apostles. And there is so much depth in what we see in this upper room discourse in John chapter 13 and beyond as we go through into the Passion Week, into the crucifixion. There is going to be so many rich things that we'll be able to learn from, from God's Word and through James as we go into chapter 13. But chapter 12 is Christ's last plea, as I've mentioned. And I'd like you to go to John chapter 12 and look at it with me for just a moment in review, simply to to look at where we've been a little bit, but I'd also like to set you up with something that we've read 
to help you understand something because as we come into this passage, it could be confusing, at least on the surface. So for a little bit of clarification, go back in your Bibles to John chapter 12 and take a look at verse 36, which I have already covered. Don't worry, I won't re-preach it, but I'd like to show you something. Jesus says this, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. We'll touch on that again today. But it says this, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Very interesting because in verse 44, we're going to see Jesus say something again publicly. And I think I have an answer for you for that. But I don't want you to be confused. Jesus did depart from them. And what we heard in the last message I gave in John chapter 12 is John's description of the theology and the doctrine of what Christ had been preaching, and he continues this. But what he does in verse 44 is a little unique. Let me read that as we jump into this passage. So I'm going to read 44 through 50, and you'll see what I mean. So we already know Jesus has gotten away from everybody. He is all by himself. He's hid himself from them. But then we see this. Look at verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I don't judge him. For I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So we see this passage, and it seems like Jesus is coming back from the isolation and saying, one more thing. And that's not what I think we're dealing with here. What I think divinely, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, What John is putting, why he's putting this here is because I think Jesus spoke this during the Passion Week. And it's a great summary, what we would call a seven-verse systematic theology course on what it is Christ was about while he was here on earth. What it is Christ preached while he was on earth. What it is we've heard from Christ preaching and teaching to us in the, the last several months. And it's a great summary And a great reminder, what we find in Scripture often as we've studied it, is that God oftentimes reminds us of things that are important. In this particular situation, we have yet another emphasis that we'll look at here in just a moment. But if it's really important, if it's something he wants us to really understand, there's nothing like redundancy. There's nothing like repetition. Repetition is how we remember things. It's, It's how we get things stuck. And this is exactly what Christ wants us to do here. So here's how we're going to look at this today. We're going to see here a good summary. And there's two different angles that I've taken on this particular message. I had to actually rewrite this a little bit because I took one direction. I counseled with my wife a little bit about it. And then I decided to take another direction. And then I thought through this and listened to several sermons and commentaries and maybe too much and settled on, let's just talk about the blessings that come. Let's talk about the promises that come. Let's talk about the eternal reward and blessing that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. With that, however, we've got to look at some of the negative as well. So eternal consequences and eternal blessings. That's what we're going to look at. So number one, here's the first thing we're going to see today is one of the eternal blessings, the forever blessings, the forever promises is that we have access to the Father. And that's important. Number two, we're going to see in this, in this list of verses, we have access to the light. We now have access to, to seeing vision of what's true, the truth, the word. And then number three, access to the saving word, the ability to be saved because we understand it, because God has given us that ability to hear his word and believe on it. And then finally, access to eternal life. Now, there's some negative along there. There's some consequences along this path as well. But that's what we're going to look at today. Now, in summary, this is the last thing I touched on. I don't want to spend too much time on these particular points. But we remember where we came from in the last two sermons that I delivered. Time is running out. 
The time for salvation is now. It is today. And this is not a surprise. It wasn't a shock to the Lord. This is the way it has always been. So when we look at this, this last sermon that I delivered from, my, from John, quoting Isaiah, it is, it is something that is important for us to remember. Salvation needs to be today. And it's going to come back around again today in this message. You heard it in hour number one, that every single message, and I, I absolutely concur with Alistair Begg on this, every message that should be preached or will be preached from this pulpit should include a charge to you and to I, the believer and the non-believer, of the essential necessity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus and him crucified. Myself, yourself, a sinner in desperate need of the perfect, holy Savior. And that's exactly what we saw and what our aim is. So this is where we are. Now, here's where we're starting. Eternal promise, eternal consequence, number one, access to the Father. Now, before we jump into this particular promise, look at it again with me in verse 44. I'll bring it up here on the screen. We have this very first phrase, and it says, and Jesus cried out and said. Now remember, I believe this happened a little earlier in the week. Certainly it's something Jesus said. It wasn't chronology, in a chronological perspective in this moment. But it says he cried out. This particular Greek word, this one word, which is a phrase, means to shout, to scream, to speak loudly with authority or boldness. And we see this about 11 times, this use in the New Testament. And Jesus does it a few times. I'll show you a few of them. In each and every one of these scenarios, we have something important that Christ is about to present or something important that's about to happen. And you'll see what I mean by this. Now, it's interesting to consider this. As we fly through this passage and you skip this, you may not understand. It's very hard to get the context or the feeling of what Jesus is saying or how he is saying this. In this case, I don't think we have that option. He's saying this with a sense of urgency. He's saying this with a, a boldness that is in, the intent is to get your attention and to get my attention. Through space and time, 2,000 years later, as we see the divine word right in front of us, you're supposed to get across from Christ, this is important. Listen up. Your antenna should go up. Your feelers should go up. This is important, and he's getting your attention. This isn't subtle. This is bold. And so when we hear this, we see this in many other occasions. Here's a few of the other situations. We see this in John chapter 7, verse 28. Jesus is in the temple. This is at the Feast of Booths. We've covered this already, so I won't spend a lot of time on this. But it says Jesus proclaimed, he preached, he cried out in the temple, and this has got to do with him being unified, one with the Father. We're going to see this come around in our message today, how important this is. Throughout his ministry, Christ continually talked about his unification and oneness with the Father. Why? Because he's divine and he wants you to know he's divine. Why? Because only God can save sinners. Only God can forgive you of your sins. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He doesn't have that ability or right if he's not God. So with an emphasis... He's letting us know this is what it's about. Later on in John 7, we have the same phrase, same Greek word used here. And here, it's to remind us or to tell us. It's not a reminder. Actually, this is one of the first times we hear about the coming Holy Spirit that not only unifies the Father and the Son, part of the Trinity, but unifies you to Him. That you now have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Notice what it says. He said this about the Spirit, end of this, verse 39, whom... Those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Talking about Pentecost that would be coming, that we will read about and have studied in, in the book of Acts. So this was an important teaching that will be unified to the Father, and he shouts this out, this incredible thing. And then we see this, John 1, 15, John the Baptist used it to, to signify how important Jesus is. Look at what it says here. John bore witness about him and cried out, Jesus, he's talking about Christ. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. He shouted this out for emphasis, for passion, so we understand this. And then one more example that came after Christ and after John the Baptist, and this is a very familiar passage. This is 
the martyrdom of Stephen. And notice two times this particular phrase is used. When the crowd, the Sanhedrin, cried out with a loud voice, yelling at Stephen because he was proclaiming truth, and then Stephen crying out with a loud voice while he's being killed, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Praising, glorifying the Lord, mimicking Jesus' words from the cross. And we see Jesus, of course, doing the same thing. So this is clearly an important thing. I spent a little bit more time than maybe I should have on that, but I want you to understand what we're about to read and see and study is vitally important. Christ wants you to see it and hear it. So let's get back to this text, 44 and 45. Let's read that again. And Jesus cried out, and I'll put this up on the screen, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Now right off the bat, we see something that may confuse you. Jesus says something that is quite unusual. He says, look at this passage, whoever believes in me believes not in me. Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Is he saying, don't really believe in me? Don't actually believe in me? Does that, you think that's exactly what he's trying to say here? Well, I think you probably have figured out that's not what he is saying here. I, got, I found a great quote to help us understand this a little bit. And this is, a, this is an early quote. It's actually over 100 years old. From my best guess, this particular, J.C. Ryle wrote this somewhere around 1890. This is in his commentary of John. By the way, J.C. Ryle, who we're about to see a quote on here, was a, a stalwart of truth. He was... I wrote this down. He was called in his time, this is kind of cool, he was dubbed as the man of granite with the heart of a child. Kind of cool, isn't it? Almost like that idea of velvet steel that we've talked about before. He was also called the lion of the truth. As we heard in hour number one, let that lion out. The truth is the word of God. He had many enemies and many followers at the time, and he didn't care either way. He was going to preach the truth. But this is what he says on this particular passage. Kind of an interesting thing. I'll bring it up on the screen. It's a long quote, but it helps us to understand this. This idea, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. This remarkable expression seems meant to proclaim for the last time the great truth so often insisted on by our Lord, which we've already heard today. The entire unity between himself and the Father. Once more... Jesus declares that there is such a complete and mysterious oneness between himself and the Father that he who believes on him believes not only on him, but on him that sent him. Of course, the sentence cannot literally mean that the man who believes on Christ does not believe on Christ, but according to a mode of speech not, com- not uncommon in the New Testament, our Lord taught that all who, in obedience to his call, we're going to talk about that today, put their trust in him, would find that there we're not trusting on the Son only, but on the Father also. In short, to trust in the Son, the sent Savior of sinners, is to trust also in the Father who sent him to save. That makes sense, doesn't it? The Son and the Father cannot be divided, though they are distinct persons in the Trinity, and faith in the Son gives an interest in the Father. That makes sense. So when he's saying this, he's not saying, don't believe in me, he's believe in me and believe in the Father. Don't believe in me only, but understand that when you believe in me, you are believing in the Father. And we're going to see this, how Christ unpacks this through the book of John. So I've put in for emphasis the word only. Keep in mind, the original text doesn't have that. We know the intent of that passage certainly means that and how Christ preaches. How do I say that? Well, look at what Jesus says in John 8. John 8, 57 through 59. I'll hustle through a few of these. So the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Notice what he says. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. One of these I am statements. I am God. The idea that he's trying to get across to them is, you're looking at God. You're in the presence of God. The kingdom is in your midst. The king is here. So they they knew what he meant. Look at what they want to do. They picked up stones to throw at him because... But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. We see that in John 8. Look at John 10. Same idea here. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. We're going to see this come around again later on today. I'll use the same passage. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to them me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The oneness of the Father and the Son. 
oneness of the Father and Son to deliver eternal life. We'll get to that later. Notice he says, I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was I am, connecting himself with the I am of the Old Testament. Here we see I and the Father are one. Notice the Jews' reaction again, same one, right? They picked up stones to throw at him. Now turn in your Bibles to John 14. I will get a chance to teach on John 14, by the way, even though it won't be preaching on it. When we go through the book of Revelation, very early on, we're going to cover John chapter 14, verses 1 through 9, and I'd like you to go there right now. This idea of the oneness of Christ. This was not easy for the apostles to understand. And it's not easy for people to understand today, but it's so essential that Christ continues to repeat it. As you've seen, we've seen it in John 8, we've seen it in John 10, we also saw it in John 1, we see it in John 5, I didn't cover those, we see it again in John 12 multiple times, but look at John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus is is anticipating what the apostles will be feeling and experiencing, and he predicts their denial, and he predicts their fleeing from him on this night, knowing what they're going to go through, although he has warned them this, this was coming, his crucifixion. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. You see that connection? Me and the Father. Me, Father. We're one. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. We'll get to that in the weeks coming. And you know that where I I am going. Now here's where it gets interesting. Notice the apostle's reaction. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? It's funny. You know, he's been with these guys for three years. It's funny. He's going to say some things that clarify this for them, but you'd think, boy, shouldn't they have gotten it by now? And before you go judging the apostles... Shouldn't you and I get it by now? Yet I find myself every Sunday showing up here in Sunday school, hearing somebody preach, and I am convicted yet again of something I should have already known. Do you feel that? I hear something again for the thousandth time, and yet I'm still not doing it the way I should. I'm still not obeying the way I should. If you think, how could the apostles not have gotten that? Let's look to ourselves. This this scripture we see is a mirror, isn't it? It reflects back to us. Back to the text. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Look at that connection, right? I and the Father are one. No one comes to the Father but through me. Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Interesting. Now, I want to just pause here for a moment. I'm going to talk about Matthew 7 twice today. Matthew 7, 23, Jesus says startling words when he is referencing the great white throne judgment, which we'll look at later. But what Jesus says in that particular scenario, he says there will be people who come to him and say, Lord, Lord, you're my Savior. This, they, they're going to believe, even though they've been in a version of hell called Hades for however long since their death, they're going to show up at this judgment thinking they're saved. And they're going to say, Lord, Lord. But he says, not everybody who says, Lord, Lord. Not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, is one of mine will enter the kingdom of heaven. He'll say to some of them, and you know this from Matthew 7, depart from me, I never knew you. I don't know you. Knowing God means you know the Savior. You know Jesus. And I don't just mean the Jesus of your own invention. I mean the Jesus of this book. The Jesus that is laid out in the Word of God, and we're going to see that unpacked today. And that's what we see here. I never knew you. He says, if you know me, you know the Father. Look at Philip's response. And he says, from now on you do know him and have seen him because they've seen him. Philip said to him, show us the Father and that's enough. Look at Jesus. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? and You still don't know me, Philip? Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? If you know Jesus, you know the Father. They aren't separate. Are they distinct persons? Yes. They have the same essence. They are the same being. And how can I say that? Well, look at Colossians 1, verse 15a. We're going to look at this twice, too. Colossians 1, 15a says that he is the image of the invisible God. We cannot look upon God and survive. We know that from the Old Testament. But you can look upon Jesus and live. They're, They're the same, the same essence. He is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1, 3 says the exact imprint in the ESV, 
In the NASB, it says representation of his nature, of his essence, of who he is. Notice it says, in, continuing on in Hebrews 1, Colossians 1 does the same. We'll look at it later. Upholds the universe by the word, that's a key here, of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. They are the same. Daniel 7, the authority that the ancient of days gave to the Son of Man. They are the same, the same essence. But it's kind of cool here. We see the exact imprint. It made me think of this, and I looked into this particular Greek phrase, and here's where we see it outside of the Bible. We see it here when they use this for ancient signet rings. Now, interesting, I was talking to Hawk yesterday. We were watching football, and I couldn't, couldn't put the sermon down, kept messing with it. And it's interesting, these are actual ancient uh, signet rings that you can buy. This one is $10,000 if you want it for that ancient ring. This one just got discovered by somebody, and this one, I think I actually mixed this up, this sold for 10000 and this one is selling for 9000 So get your checkbook out if you want an ancient signet ring, there you go. But what are these? Well, these represented, if you look at them, either a god or an individual, and it put the imprint that on a letter, on a document, on something, it says, I stamp this as approved as if I am saying it. This is me. This goes with the authority that I have. Whoever this is and whoever these people were, I give the authority of this document, these words, and keep in mind, Jesus is the Word, isn't he? And the words that are in front of us, we believe because Scripture teaches us that they are inspired, that I give the authority, the Father's authority is given to this. It's the exact imprint. And God the Father gave the authority to the Son. He's the exact imprint. Kind of a cool connection that we see. And that made that document valid. It makes Christ valid. That's why he is saying these things. But there's more to this. It's not just the Father and the Son that are unified. It's more you're unified too. If we look at this text one more time, back to John chapter 12, reading this again, it says, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, uh, whoever sees me sees him who sent me. There is a connection here to the believer as well. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 38. You don't need to turn there, but here's what it says. And whoever does not take his cross, this is the first time Christ references the cross to his apostles, and he's referencing them having to take up a cross, some sort of sacrifice, some sort of burden, giving up all for the name of Christ, not a cheap grace, but an all-in grace, and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He's talking about true salvation. Someone who's given their life to Christ. Somebody who has believed on Jesus. And because of that, they understand the ramifications. They understand repentance. And they understand the idea of, of surrendering self. Notice what he says, though, at the end of this. We oftentimes read that passage and leave it. Look at verse 40. Whoever receives you, the believer he's talking about, the apostle, but the believer receives me, Jesus. And whoever receives me, Jesus, receives him who sent me. Look at that connection. You put your faith in Christ. You give all. You surrender all. He saves you. You're all in. And that's the only way to be saved, by the way. You're connected with the Father and the Son. The message you deliver as an ambassador, you're delivering with the authority, with the signet ring of the Almighty incredible. 2 Corinthians 5.20 tells us we're ambassadors. He's making his appeal through us. We represent Christ, the believer. Amazing. It's not the only time we see that. Look at John 13, just a little further down the line from where we are. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is in the upper room, and he's talking to his apostles. He's talking to believers. Incredible. Turn to John 17. I want to show you one more. John 17. Look at this unification. And, and why I'm saying this is, remember, this is in the context of you now have access to the Father. The only one who can save. Remember, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It is essential that you go to the Father to have salvation. The Son and the Father. But look at why. So John chapter 17, verse 20. And I just love this connected to our number one. What are we here for? Why are, we, why are we preaching the word? Why do I preach it? Why do you speak of it? Why do you talk to it, to your family, your friends, your coworkers? Here's why. John chapter 17, we've looked at this high priestly prayer so many times, but here's what it says. 
Jesus speaking of this unification and consecration and sanctification and the, the, the fact that we're unified in the truth of God's word, that's all before we get to verse 20. But verse 20 says, I don't ask for these only as Jesus is praying to the Father on our behalf, but also for those who will believe in him through their word, that's us, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also might be in us. Look at that. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Did you catch that? Why are you unified to the Father and the Son via the Holy Spirit? Why is that? So that you can make him known to the world around you. It isn't just for your joy and your contentment. Those are beautiful things that come from the Holy Spirit. It isn't just for direction and conviction. And those are important things that come from the Holy Spirit. It's so you have the ability to speak the truth of God's word to those around you. To make it known to the people around you. Let me finish the passage. A beautiful thing. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. That this was all based on the love of God. That Jesus came and died for us. That he made a way for us because he loved us. And you have that message of reconciliation. We were once lost. We were once enemies. And now we are found. And you get to represent him. Access to the Father and now oneness. Beautiful thing. Point two. Eternal promise, eternal consequence number two is that we have access to the light. Now I had to take a lot of slides out because I realized I've already taught on the light and I don't want to overburden you with it. So I tried to come up with some new things because I just covered this a few weeks ago. But let's get back to the text. 1246, let's read it. I'll bring it up on the screen for you. So oneness with the Father and the Son, oneness with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and us. And then look at this, this uh, text as he shifts on. There's another benefit to the believer, eternal promise. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. What an incredible promise. Wandering around in the darkness as we all were at one time, and now we have this ability to bring this around to ourselves or for God to bring this around so we can see the truth. I want you to look at this connection. John chapter 8. This isn't a surprise to me, by the way. shouldn't be a surprise to you that what we see in summary in this incredible doctrine that's in verses 44 through 50 that Jesus hasn't already said it once before. Look at John 8, which we've looked at before. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world giving himself that title, that he is the light, that he is shown out of darkness, that he is fulfilling the prophecies that we saw in Isaiah. I won't go back to those again. But whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, I'm going to get to that in a moment. We're going to come back around to that. I want to skip down. I gave the whole context for you, but look at the end of this. Notice this. He's connecting himself being the light and being the light to what we've already seen. Yet even if I do judge, which we'll see later, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Notice the oneness of the Father and the Son, and he connects it to the light. He doesn't change his message. Have you noticed that about Jesus? That he doesn't fit it or change it to fit culture, as we've already heard discussed this morning in hour number one. He just preaches the truth of what the Father told him to preach because he and the Father are one. And it is the only truth that will save, the pure gospel. Incredible. We see another connection to this in Colossians chapter 1, which we've been to already as well. This is a different piece of this. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Notice who's doing that. Not you, not me. He did it. So the light came to bear the truth, but the light is the one who also brings you out of the darkness and puts you into his incredible light. He's the one who does that. And then notice the connection. We see Paul writing this in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Look at what he connects this to. He is the image of the invisible God, which we already saw. I just showed you verse 15 earlier, but when we look at the context, he's talking about himself being the light. Jesus said it. Paul said it. The Holy Spirit is saying this. The deity of Christ, notice at the end of this in verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. We saw this in Hebrews earlier. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
the deity of Christ brought back around. But there's, there's more to this light. The access to light should be a motivation. Notice this. Notice this. Paul says to Timothy, we heard from uh, Paul to Timothy and 2 Timothy this morning, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, preached the gospel. He said, I was born for this, born for the truth. He was born to be king, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, he's referencing to the commandment of the gospel, which we'll get to later, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Our, our Father lives in unapproachable light. And yet what do we read? You can approach. Because of you? Because of me? Because of your righteous deeds? No, we know those, according to Isaiah, those are filthy rags. You can approach unapproachable light through Jesus Christ because he gives you access to the light. The one who dwells in unapproachable light, the King of kings, the, the Lord of lords, loves you so much that he allows you access to the Father, the oneness of the Father and the Son. Amazing. But I want you to remember why Christ came. Without Christ, you're in the dark. Look at John 3 in this discussion he has with, with uh, Nicodemus. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people who love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. By the way, that was you. We, by design, by our own, in our own initiative, we love the darkness. And why do we love the darkness? Because it doesn't expose our evil. It, doesn't, it won't expose that evil if we're in darkness. That's how all of us were. None of you in here were always in the light. None of you were born into the light. You were born into darkness. We know this from Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3. All of us were dead in our trespasses. Verse 20, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God, that we are righteous because of what Christ did to us. The light came, the light saved you, you were once in darkness, now you're attracted to the light because he transformed you into something else. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 6, there's another connection to this. Look at this, should be up on the screen for you. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in their case, just like what we heard earlier, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light. Notice it's not just the light, the light of the gospel. Jesus is the word, he is the light, and he is the eternal gospel. The words Christ spoke are the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Once again, we see this connection to he and the Father, them being one. And then let's skip down here a little bit. We're these servants, we're, we're so, to proclaim this, let, and, and, and we, we know that this is what Christ did, for God said this about him, let, let light shine out of darkness. It's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when we see that the light has come, the light has drawn us out of the darkness, Christ saved us so that we can see the truth, we can now see that this should be beaming out of us too. That this changes us, transforms us, so that we should now be walking in the light. So we see that the light is the truth of the gospel. It's Jesus Christ. He is the light that gives us the knowledge of the glory of God. It should be oozing out of us. If we truly are in Christ, we're a brand new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 The old is gone, the new has come. If, if anyone is Christ, that is what you are. Something that is this is how it's put, and, and, and when we consider this, this idea of being regenerated, the new birth that Jesus made reference to in John chapter 3 and Peter talks about in Second Peter, we see this new birth is quantitatively something more excellent than it ever was or could be in the past or was in the past. It's a metamorphosis into something else. It's, it's often talked about, like, people discuss well, I wonder when I was saved. Was it when I said that, that prayer, when I walked that aisle? When, I, when was it? I don't know when you were saved. 
but you ought to know it's when you were changed. And I, I don't, that's different for everybody. And it could have been when you walked an aisle or you said a prayer or your parents explained it to you. I don't know. But you were once this and now you're that. You were once going that way, now you're going this way. You were once in darkness and now you're in the light. I don't know today if you're saved or if you're not. But what we do see is that the true believer is now walking in the light. They were once walking in darkness to hide those evil deeds, but now they're walking in the light. Look at this passage we looked at earlier, John chapter 8, verse 12. Just I told you we'd come back to it. Jesus said these very words, I am the light of the world, yet salvation comes through me. The truth of the gospel enlightens. This is the truth. You're in darkness, but here's the truth. But if you do truly follow him, look at what he says. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness anymore, but will have the light of life. Now, don't misunderstand me here. This doesn't mean you become perfect. I've never met one of those. I've never met a Christian who now never sins. As a matter of fact, I've met a lot of Christians that seem to have sinned even more. I don't know, but I know this about myself. What I see from Scripture, the light of Scripture, is what it does is exposes more of my sin than I ever saw before. And as I continue to study it, and I continue to see the Lord transforming me, what I see is, is him continuing to chip off these horrific pieces of my character that he needs to, to make me into what he wants me to be. What I see is the light gets brighter as I, as I grow in Christ, and I see that my walking with him isn't perfection. It's straining towards perfection. It's not perfect holiness. It's living in a way that I desire to be holy as he is holy. It is a life characterized by desiring to do what God calls me to do and oftentimes failing at it and repenting and confessing and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we look in 1 John 1, John here is not saying to you or to me, you earn salvation. What he is saying is this is proof that you're in Christ. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. If your life isn't characterized by desiring to please the Lord, you're lying to yourself. That walking the aisle, that saying the prayer, that going to camp, that's filling out a worksheet from some track somewhere might have just been an exercise of futility because if your life isn't different, you weren't changed. We lie to ourselves and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. You and I, holding each other accountable, helping one another, exhorting one another, as we heard in 2 Timothy 4 this morning, using the word to exhort, using the word to rebuke, using the word to, as we hear from Paul later on, to, to train in righteousness. But if we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sins. We, we walk with him, and he's working on us. Ephesians 5, verse 8 says, For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are in the light in the Lord. You are the, you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. We can find ourselves veering away from the light, not walking in the not embracing what we now are, that new creation. Walk as children of light. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14, says, what partnership has righteousness with unrighteousness or lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? Look at your life and take a look and see, am I walking in the light as I've, called, I've been called to walk in the light? It's a challenge for each and every one of us. You now have access to the light. What an incredible blessing. You have access to the word of God and to the truth. Number three, eternal promises, eternal consequences. Number three, access to the saving word. Back to, to the text. I'll bring up 47 and 48. Let's read that again. 47, 48 says this. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I don't judge him. For I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Boy, Jesus puts a big emphasis on the word, word, here, doesn't he? He's really trying to get across to you that the word of God is important. And the word that he spoke is important. And he is the living word is important. And the gospel he proclaimed and his apostles proclaimed and wrote about is important. And if 
You consider the fact that he said, I didn't come to judge the world. We know that from John 3, 17 and 18. But we also know that he will come back to judge the world and we'll reconcile those here in a moment. But here's what we know. Here's a truth that is incredible for us. Look at John chapter 5. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus has said, I, I don't judge you. But remember, he is explaining what's going to judge you is the words that I've spoken to you, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Look at that connection, right? Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word. Fascinating, right? When Jesus talks about himself being judge, here in John 5, just as he does in John chapter 12, as we just read, he's connecting it to his word. Here's my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. It's the words found in this book, incredible, eternal, supernatural book in front of you that contain the light of life, the words of eternal life. John 8, chapter 50, and, chapter 8, verse 50 and 51. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Look at that. Jesus, he's coming back to the same ideas. I and the Father are one. I am the light. And you need to keep my word. That is what saves you. Considering all of Christ's teaching here, though, not just the ones you like, the full counsel of God, as we read through these four Gospels and beyond, we want to look at exactly who Jesus is as he is described and explained in Scripture. Not just the pieces we like. Not just the pieces that are convenient. But we need to consider passages like dying to self. Passages like, I am going to ask you that if you're truly in me, you love me more than mother, father, son, daughter, husband, wife. That if you believe in me, that you understand that it is your job that maybe you've got to take up your cross and follow me, as we heard earlier from Matthew 10. That if you believe in me, you believe that it is exclusively through me. That if you believe in me, you believe that there is a real heaven and a real hell, and real people are going to go to both. That if you believe in me, you must repent and believe on my name only. That if you believe in me, you believe in all of the moral teachings of the New Testament and the Old. That if you believe in me, you're going to walk in the light, not in darkness anymore. You believe the full counsel of God, and I could go on. The full counsel of God of who Jesus is, all of his teaching, that's keeping his word, that you believe in all of it. So we know this very first time, what good news, Jesus came to save the world, and he came the first time to be the sacrifice, to be the lamb that was slain because he knows what we need. We need a savior. I'm looking forward to the conquering king and so are you. But I wouldn't be looking forward to him coming the second time if he didn't come the first. I would be in dread. I would be in agony. I would be in total fear, not a good kind, of what was coming upon me. But that's not the case because he didn't come to condemn me, he came to save me. Now that changes as we go forward. The reason why people don't get saved, the reason why, as we studied last week, why people don't avert, change, get away from the wrath of God is because they didn't believe in the only name of the Son of God. And in that second advent, he will judge the world. John chapter 5, verse 22, 25 through 27. Notice it says in verse 27, as we've looked at this already, he has given authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. As I made reference to that Daniel 7, he and the Father are one, and he will execute judgment. And it is important to understand that although Jesus is merciful and gracious and loving and kind, and he is, and he invites you to embrace him because life with him is better, that is true. He desires for you to live a life full of contentment and joy, all true and all offered by Christ. He also wants you to understand the ramifications of rejecting all of that. And the ramifications is he will execute judgment on this world. And he is not the only one that says that about himself. Notice what Paul says to the Athenians when he is preaching to them about their false worship of false gods. He doesn't mix words. He, he challenges them with an unknown God that they worship amongst a, a myriad of, and myriads of other false gods, and he says this about our God. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, it's no more. 
God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. I'm commanding that you repent, as we'll see later in this passage. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Jesus will judge, and he will judge with righteousness, with an iron fist. Paul says in Romans 2, a very interesting passage, he says, on that day, speaking of the last day, when according to my gospel, not Paul's, Paul was delivering it, but Jesus' gospel, his word, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Spurgeon has a great quote on this particular verse when he talks about this, according to my gospel. He says this, and I apologize for Spurgeon's yees and these, but that's the time. Look ye to that, the gospel, which you refuse will judge you at that last day. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ shall judge the world, saith Paul, according to my gospel, and that he that, that sins against the gospel of love, the word of God, will certainly involve himself in the most solemn condemnation. He perishes that sins against he perishes that sins against the law. He dieth without mercy at the mouth of one or two witnesses. Of how much sore punishment shall he be, be thought worthy that sins against love and rejects the Savior? As I mentioned last week, it is eternal divine treason to reject the love and, and mercy and grace of Jesus Christ through his gospel, through his word. It's eternal and divine treason that we see. He will judge the world, and as we see in Romans 2, according to this gospel, Acts chapter 10, Cornelius and Peter, Peter delivering this message. Once again, Peter doesn't mix words, just like Paul didn't, just like Christ didn't. He commanded us to preach to the people. These are to non-believers who don't know what Peter's talking about. He delivers the gospel of repentance and belief on Christ, and he doesn't exclude this important fact he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by god to judge the living and the dead he's going to judge to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name so we see this idea of the last day the word that i have spoken will judge him on the last day turn with me to revelation chapter 19 we're going to look at 19 and 20 very quickly very quickly. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but it's vital. What last day? What last day are we referencing? I, I talked about Matthew 10 earlier today, that many will come to Christ and say, Lord, Lord, and de desire and almost demand that he save them, but he didn't know them. Look at 19. This is how Christ will return. We have to have the full counsel of God. You need to believe what Jesus said about himself, what John says about Christ, what James says about Christ, what Paul says about Christ, what Peter says about Christ, what Isaiah and the prophets say about Christ. Believe it all. Verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. Have we heard this before? He will judge in righteousness. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has the name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is, look at this, the Word of God. What have we seen today? It is the Word of God that will judge people in the last day. The Word in living flesh will show up and judge people based on how they handled the Word of God and the warnings. Remember how Christ started this, in, this incredible passage? He was yelling. He was shouting that they listen to this in this last plea to the people of Israel and to the people in Jerusalem at that time. Listen to me. I'm coming back and it won't be pretty. Verse 14, And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, and that's you, believer, by the way, white and pure, as well as the angels, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, he will tread the winepresses of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is the same Jesus that died on the cross for your sins. The same Jesus that loves you and showed mercy and grace to you. The time will run out for some. And as you skip over to chapter 20, look at this. The great white throne judgment. 
referenced in Matthew 10 earlier. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who seated on it from his presence, earth and sky, fled away. No place was found for them, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. According to what they had done. Death and Hades gave up the the dead who were in them. They were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Now let me just pause here for a moment, Christian. How thankful are you that you will not be judged for what you have done, but you will be judged for what your king has done because you believed on his word. You believed him who saved you. But if you don't, it's your work that will be on, on analysis. It's your work that you will be judged for, and you will be found wanting. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, we hear earlier in the passage, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Whew, that's rough. But what about you? For me and you, God didn't send his son to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What are the promises that we have? Look at this. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Promise to you, believer, how awesome that Christ is shouting this through the ages to you and to me in this passage. You will be saved if you believe on me. You will miss the wrath of God if you believe on me. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 And we wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Praise be to God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 10, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Thanks be to God that that is you, Christian. I've been hammering you guys for weeks about believing in Christ, and I told, I promised my wife, but I'm going to give some good news today. If you're in Christ, you now are no longer condemned. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You should be getting chills thinking about that, considering what could be, what you once were, and what Christ has done for you. Incredible. Why? In order, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirements of the law must, might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It should be a motivating factor. We are no longer condemned, so we now have access to the light, and we walk in the light. Incredible connection. And then finally, number four, we have access to eternal life, and all of these things begin to come together. All that we've just read, because of what Christ has done, because he is one with the Father, if we've seen him, we've seen the Father. If we know him, we know the Father. We are now exposed to the light. We now believe in the the truth of the Word of God, and the Word of God is what will judge us good for us, bad for those who reject it. Here's what we now see, verse 49 and 50, to end this. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. This is important. He's given him a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. I never noticed this before, I'll be honest. I was talking to Justin this morning. He asked me something point blank. He said, do you ever study these things? And then you're like, how did I not see that before? Yep. Every time I prepare a sermon for you and for me, I can't. I said, well, I've never, I've read this a hundred times. How did I? He calls the gospel a command. Wow, that's fascinating, right? And as I dug into that, the command of eternal life, he's speaking this. What he said, everything that he said was in unison with what the Father's will was, and everything he did in his life brought it back to the, to the gospel, and the word that Christ spoke to believe on him, to repent and believe from the beginning to the end, from what John the Baptist introduced him as, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, to repent and believe on him, to what the apostles proclaimed throughout their entire lives was the same. And I I came across this quote, and Lawson does a great job with this, as you can well imagine. Here's what he says, and I'll bring this up. It's a long one. The command of the gospel is so important for both the believer and the non-believer. When the gospel is presented, listen carefully, it is not to be played with. It is not to be toyed with. It has come as a subpoena from the high courts of heaven. I wish I could write like that. And there must not be a delay in obeying this command of the king. 
Jesus orders unbelievers, non-believers, to turn away from their sin and to believe in him. Therefore, saving faith is not optional. It is required and it is demanded. Unbelief is not an intellectual problem. It is a heart problem. Further on in this commentary, he says this, there is only faith and unbelief of the gospel. There is only obedience and disobedience to the gospel. It is one or the other. When believers share the gospel with the lost around them, we must understand that it is important that presenting the message in such a way that we coax or nudge someone into making a decision. But rather, we must communicate, listen to this, that the God of the universe has commanded them to believe in his Son now, today, and without hesitation. It is a command from the Almighty. If you want to be saved... If you don't want to stay in judgment, if you want eternal life, there is only one way, and it is this way. Jesus said, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and what? Believes on him, believes on the word, is exposed to the light, sees it, believes on it. Christ transformed them into what they now are, They're living a different life. That's the proof. They should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's a promise to you and to me. Further on in John chapter 6, as I start to land this plane, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. A hard teaching, being about, being about, uh, talking about being, him being the bread of life. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And look at, what, look at these words. Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's amazing, these connections. The word's going to judge people. It will judge you, and it will judge me. The word, the living word of God, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the light of God, the word of God, the great I am, who is one with the Father. He said the words that you must believe on. To believe on him is salvation. To believe on the Jesus of the Bible is salvation. And he says, those are the words of eternal life. Peter knew it. It's you. You're the eternal life. Your words are the eternal life. Believing on you and what you say and what you lived is where it's at. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus says in John 10, we've looked at this earlier, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. We saw that earlier. And then finally, we're going to look here. John 17, 1 through 3, on our high priestly prayer at the very beginning of this prayer. Notice what it says. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come to glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, understanding what was about to happen at the cross. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, look at what he's given authority to do, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Wow, brings it all back around. That the Father and the Son are one. Eternal life comes because you see the light, because you've been exposed to His Word. His Word is eternal life, as Peter just told us, and that we have eternal life through the Father and the Son because the Father sent the Son. And then one last thing, the testimony of men versus the testimony of God. And I want to challenge you with this. You, may, you need to make this decision. Some of you, this has just been an uplifting, encouraging, this is who I am in Christ. These are the promises that are true. This is one last thing that Christ is shouting through the eternal pages of his word to me that is encouraging me as a Christian. But some of you are still believing in the testimony of men rather than the testimony of God. And I want to finish with 1 John 5. And the reason I added this is because I was studying personally. First John, I was running through the epistles, separate from this sermon. This was just my own personal Bible study of this. And I, I couldn't help but to not put this in. It wasn't originally there. But I said, we got to look at this because it was convicting me and it should be convicting you. And I want to look at this and we'll end here. This is, I promise, the last slide. First John chapter 5, verse 9 through 12. John, speaking of the true nature of the believer, what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. He gives us evidences. But then he says this, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has born concerning his son. Now before I go any further, you're going to hear a lot of people's explanation of who Jesus is in this world. 
You're going to hear a lot of people tell you the way of salvation and the way to go and the way to live, and they will veil it in Scripture at times and use Bible verses out of context to try to defend their point. That is, that is the testimony of men. We need to take God's testimony. Look at what he says about his son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. If you truly believe the Holy Spirit's in you, you've got the testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. All we've studied and beyond that is in Scripture. This is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life. Amazing, right? Look at that. And this is the life. This life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. And as simple as this, just like what we heard quoted from Lawson earlier, whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. It's as simple as that. So I challenge you today, who are you listening to? You listening to the people around you who are pumping you up, giving you answers, maybe making you feel okay? The gospel is offensive, and it challenges you where you're at right now. And it brings you to your knees, and it cuts you down to size, and it breaks you. And when you get across, and you come across the, the granite that is Jesus Christ and his word, the only answer for you is belief. Is belief. Believe the testimony of God, not the testimony of men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this truth. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity I've had to preach your word here for the last several months. And I continue to pray for pastor as he comes, James, and he, uh, he serves you and serves us. I pray that you be with him as he prepares, be with him his, as he leads this church. And we know all praise and glory goes to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.